this time in our worship now for our scripture reading. As we come into the presence of God, just like when we first met someone, the most powerful moment is the one where we hear them speak. Hear now as God speaks from his word. Two scripture readings today. First one is from Exodus 2016. And if you would like to follow along in your Bibles. Okay, Exodus 2016. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. And the second one is from Ephesians 4, number 20 through 32. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught, with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. we get to continue our way through the Ten Commandments. We are almost done with them, if you can count. We've got one more to go. But let's come to the Lord in prayer as we look at this text. God and Father, we always, as we come to your word, are shown our sin. It is a mirror that shows us our sin and that shows us our need for you. I pray that you might be at work doing both of these things to all of us, sinners, as we hear from your word, and that you would be with me a sinner as I proclaim it. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I've always had a soft spot for courtroom television shows and movies. You know what I'm talking about? The, you know, the, the shows where you've got these clever lawyers and these really crazy cases and they're given these, these cross-examinations where they're like yelling at the person and they're, they're crying and the other lawyer is yelling, I object! And, you know, impassioned arguments and all of that stuff. And I know that that looks nothing like what actual courtrooms look like, but I love those images, and it's interesting how both in those shows and in actual courtrooms, a lot of that actually has its roots in um, the law of the Old Testament. The ancient world was not an especially just place. You 
could often, you were presumed guilty just by being accused, and a king could often convict you of stuff without any evidence being given, um, often even without you having the right to defend yourself. And the Old Testament is actually one of the early examples we have of a system that seeks to speak against that and create a system of justice. It assumed the presumption of innocence, it gave restrictions on what sort of punishments could be given for what sort of crimes, and it had certain requirements for witnesses. Here is one example from the book of Deuteronomy. One witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of any crime or offense they may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Which is to say that in an era before forensic science and fingerprints and DNA and all of that stuff, um, a witness had enormous power, right? Um, if you lied, it was pretty hard for anyone to demonstrate that you had lied, and so it was required that you have more than one witness to speak the crimes. At the same time, those witnesses also were held to a very high standard themselves. If one of them was caught out in a lie from Deuteronomy 19, it goes on to say that the judges must make a thorough investigation, and if they prove to be a liar, giving false testimony against a fellow Israelite, then due to the false witness, as intended to do to the other party. And it's in that world of discussing witnesses that the immediate language of this commandment meets us. Like all of the Ten Commandments, it takes a specific sin that it focuses on and that then invites us to reflect on a more general category of sin. And in this case, it uses the language of the courtroom. It says, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that this is only about legal settings, as we're going to say in just a minute. But that is the image that's evoked of a false witness in a court of law giving false testimony against another person in a way that hurts them. But that said, like all of the commandments, we're supposed to take that image and then we're supposed to move out from it and use it to think about the world more broadly and about the life God calls us to more broadly. And I think it's especially important to do that here because as we start with that image and then move outward, um, this is one of those commandments where I think we tend to focus on a part of it and rightly recognize part of how it applies, but we're kind of lawyers with it in the way that we apply it, and we keep it from applying more broadly to the ways it's meant to work. And so to see that, that's what we're actually going to look at this morning. What we're going to do is a couple things. First of all, we're going to discuss the two areas of sin that this commandment is meant to speak to. The two areas, which is that this commandment prohibits untrue speech, and this commandment prohibits unloving speech. We're going to talk about that, and then we're going to talk about what it looks like for us to keep this commandment and what we do with the reality that we don't keep it. But with that said, let's go. First of all, this commandment does prohibit untrue speech. This is the part that people tend to focus on, but it isn't incorrect. It calls us to speak the truth. The Bible, in a number of places, commands us not to lie in no uncertain language. Consider this from the Psalms. God says, No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. Or this from the book of Proverbs. A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who breathes out lies will perish. Why does the Bible tell us not to lie? Well, the answer is because of the character of God, first of all. Scripture insists that God is a God of truth, and that he doesn't lie. For example, in Titus 1, um, Paul describes our faith as in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. 
God does not lie, and so he also created this world in a, in a fashion that means that it is meant to be a world of truth. Adam and Eve in the garden before their sin, they're pictured together as naked and unashamed. And that is about some other stuff. You can go back and listen to the seventh commandment to hear a little bit about that too. But it is meant to be a picture of their honesty and vulnerability and openness to each other. Everything we say in this world should correspond to the way the world actually is. Of course, when you give a commandment like that, everyone immediately has lots of questions and wants to know about exceptions. And it's like, but what about this? So let's just note a couple of those things. First of all, while we are commanded not to lie by scripture, that does not mean that we have to say everything that pops into our heads. There is this movement um, you can read about online called radical honesty, where these people are supposedly just not lying, but really what it means is that whenever an offensive or crazy thought pops into their head, they just say it to people. And that is not what we're called to do by this commandment. Um, frankly, because that is actually not telling the truth. I think we have this idea that that's what being honest really looks like, but the problem is we often think things that are untrue, right? If you look at someone and you think that that person is like worthless or ugly, like God doesn't make worthless, ugly things, right? That is a lie in your head. And so just by saying it, that doesn't mean that you're telling the truth. What you're actually doing is just giving voice to that lie. So that's one exception that you don't always have to say everything that pops into your head. And then another one, and this is honestly the one that people always want to ask about, is, well, what about, like, if I have some escaped slaves and they're living in my basement and the police are knocking on my door wanting to take these slaves away from me? And in that regard, some people might actually notice there are biblical stories, like the story of Rahab hiding the Israelite spies, or of Abigail hiding King David, where they, people do lie and they seem to be commended for it. Now, those stories are actually really debated. There's really two different answers that, that people give. Some people think that it's still sinful, even in those circumstances, to lie, but that because they were seeking to do something good overall, that the Lord, you know, overlooked that lie. Other people think that um, it is, in those stories, permissible to lie because there's some other much greater evil that is clearly going to happen if they don't, and so it becomes permissible, but it's only permissible in those extreme situations. And Christians debate about that. I actually hold the second view, but regardless of your view, there's two important things to notice about that. One is that in those stories in the Bible, the main thing they're being praised for is their faith in God and their faithfulness to him, right? Not the fact that they lied. And secondly, and this is the big thing with all of the exceptions we ask about, that is only true in really extreme, unusual circumstances. The problem is what people almost always do, what my heart does, is I'm like, well, like, I feel like there's this one extreme exception. And then we feel like that gives us permission to just ignore the commandment entirely, right? It's, um, it's that, like, so, so yes, um, if, like, the Nazis are hunting for people in the Holocaust and you're hiding those people, you can lie to the authorities when they come by your house, I think. But none of us in our whole lives will probably ever be in that situation. And for our more everyday more ordinary sorts of lying that we indulge in. That is sin. All right, so don't lie. That's the first half of the commandment. But like we said, this commandment really addresses two things. What we often fail to recognize is that while it prohibits untruthful speech, it also prohibits unloving speech. It is a commandment about speaking in ways that harm others. Look at it again. 
the way people tend to summarize the commandment is to say, oh, it's do not lie, right? That's the kind of summary they give. But if that was an accurate summary, all it would have to say is you shall not bear false witness. It adds this against your neighbor's part. Why is that? Well, it's not because it's okay to bear false witness as long as it doesn't hurt anyone, right? Like we said, there are a number of places where scripture just blanket forbids us from lying. Rather, what it's doing is you'll remember that we said each commandment takes a specific, focused, extreme sort of sin, and then it means for us to recognize that that applies to this whole category. And so the specific thing it pictures is somebody perjuring themselves in court and able to harm some other innocent person, right? To bear false witness against their neighbor. And it uses that image because it wants us to recognize that both the lying and the using our words to harm our neighbor are part of the problem and the sin that we're supposed to see. Scripture often says things about how we use our words. Um, In our reading from Ephesians this morning, for example, we saw this. It says, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Now, sometimes people, when they read unwholesome talk, they just mean that that's about, like, cussing or something. But this text is not focused on that at all. What this text is focused on is, um, is using words in ways that hurt people. Unwholesome means, like, unhelpful. That's, that's what the, the Greek means. And it's contrasted with speech that builds people up. And so it's saying that if you use words to tear people down, right, to hurt people or to do things that are not helpful to people, then you are using your words wrong. Our speech, just like our actions, is always meant to reflect the Christian calling to love. Let me just, 1 Corinthians 13, right, which is this famous chapter of the Bible about love that you get asked to read a lot at weddings when you're a pastor, but just listen to this description of love and apply it in your minds to the words that we say and the way we speak about people, right? It says, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, It does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. So just apply that to our words. We're always supposed to talk in ways that are patient and kind. We should never say things that are boastful or proud. We should never say things that dishonor other people. We should not speak out of anger. It's not appropriate for us to list the wrong things that people have done to us in the past or bring them up again. We ought never talk about things that are evil in a way that delights in it. And whenever we hear things that are true, we should talk about them with rejoicing. We should always protect and trust and um, persevere in those things with people in our words. That is the Bible's definition of speech that we're called to. And that's a high standard, right? Let me first note something about that. We, when we hear that call to be loving in our speech, in our day we often feel like that's at tension with what we just said about being truthful in our speech. People often kind of pit the idea of being truthful and being loving against each other. But the problem with that is that the Bible doesn't have that tension because, frankly, that rests on both a wrong definition of truth and a wrong definition of love. On the one hand, in Scripture, it is never loving to lie to people. It is never loving to be untruthful to people. 
right? To, to, to say something that isn't true to someone, even if it makes them feel good in Scripture, is not seen as love. And at the same time, it is never truthful to speak in a way that is unkind or harsh or unloving towards somebody. There's this really striking statement in James chapter 1, where James says, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, that person's religion is worthless. Now, when James talks about bridling his tongue in James 1 and 3, he means not saying hurtful things or cursing or saying, you know, harmful things to other people. But he says, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, and then he says, but deceives his heart. What he seems to be saying is there's this connection, which is that when we say things that are unloving about people with our words, that reflects the fact that we have first lied to ourselves about them in our hearts. We've believed something untrue about that person. We have not recognized their value, their dignity, things that we're supposed to believe about them. And only then can we say hurtful things with our tongue. So, this commandment calls us um, to seek to turn from both untrue speech and unloving speech. And I know there's a weight to that, but this is such an important commandment because so many of us as Christians deal with it that before we move on to sort of how we move forward, I just want to maybe help us feel that way a little bit more. Throughout this Ten Commandments series, we've been using um, excerpts from the Westminster Larger Catechism in our Confession of Sin Time. That's part of the, the doctrinal statement of our faith. But what it's meant to be is this summary of all of the Bible's teaching about stuff. If you look up online or we've got copies out in the foyer, you know, you'll see that what we read there in the bulletin, and we're going to look at that again in just a minute, but, I mean, it's footnoted extensively. Everything is just referred back to Scripture, right? This is an attempt to summarize all the stuff the Bible says about this topic. Well, let's just read through that again and just feel the weight of that calling on us. If you start at the beginning of what it says in question 144 about what it means to keep the Ninth Commandment, it says the Ninth Commandment requires that we maintain and promote truthfulness in our dealings with each other, and the good reputation of others as well as ourselves. Which translated is what we just said. That we're supposed to protect the truth, um, and that we're supposed to love people in our speech, to seek to protect their good reputation and honor. That is about untrue speech and unloving speech. And then it takes each of those categories and expands them. First, on the truth part, it says we must come forward and stand up for the truth, speaking the truth and nothing but the truth from our hearts, Sincerely, freely, clearly, and without equivocation. Not only in all matters relating to the law and justice, but in any and every circumstance whatsoever. So we're called to actively tell the truth when it's necessary, and not to try to cover it up. All that sincerely, freely, clearly, without equivocation means like, it's not, loopholes don't matter, right? Technicalities don't matter. You're supposed to clearly and openly be truthful. We're called to speak the truth. And then it goes on to focus on our speech. It says that we must have a charitable regard for others, loving, desiring, and rejoicing in their good reputation, as well as regretting and putting the best light on their failings. We must freely acknowledge their talents and gifts, defend their innocence, readily receive a good report about them, and reluctantly admit a bad one. Which is really, while there's a lot of things, if you look at the footnotes there, that it, that it cites. Like, that's 1 Corinthians 13, right? In our speech. But it is really striking when you think about it. That the best way to always test whether we're being loving in Scripture, right, is to take the commandment, and when it says that this is true of everyone, 
Say, okay, think about a person you really dislike, right? So think about that person, right? Because it's, it's, it's easy to kind of be loving towards our, you know, our closest friends. But think about that person, and it says that we should first desire and rejoice in their good reputation. Which means that when people think well of them, that should make us happy. And when people don't, that should make us sad. It says that we should put their failings in the best possible light. Which means that um, when they're weak or they do something wrong, we should say, like, well, like, is there a way that I can look at that, you know, more positively? Do I have to view it that way? We should freely acknowledge their talents and gifts, admiring their abilities and strengths. We should defend their innocence, which means against any charge that they're not proven guilty of. And we should readily receive a good report and reluctantly admit a bad one, which means that when we hear something good about that person that we dislike, our response, our reaction should be, that is great. I am so glad to hear that. You know, I'm, I'm excited to hear that good thing. And when we hear a bad thing about them, we should say, really? Like, can you, can you prove that? Can you back that up? Because if you can't, like, really prove that, I ought not believe it. And then it goes on and lists a number of other commands. It says that we should discourage gossips, flatterers, and slanderers. We should love and protect our own good reputation and defend it when necessary. We should keep every lawful promise we make no matter what, and we should do the best we can to focus our lives and thoughts on what is true, noble, lovely, and admirable. That is the calling about how we speak. And under such a calling, we all stand convicted. I, you know, deeply stand convicted. I often reflect, given that I'm a pastor, on the fact that because my job involves a lot of, like, standing up in front of people and talking, that I'm probably especially convicted by my words. So what do we do with that? Well, the answer in Scripture, as it has been with all of these commandments, is that we do two things at once. We seek to turn from our sin, and we turn to Jesus for grace. So let's just talk concretely about each of those things. First of all, we are called to turn from our sin. When we recognize that we fail in keeping God's commandments, we ought to seek in repentance to grow in obedience. Let me just offer a couple of practical areas as I sat with this commandment, that I think we all need to be mindful of it in our lives. First, we should watch out for the little daily lies that we tell to make ourselves look better or to make other people look worse. Lying runs so deep in most of our hearts that we often don't even notice it. Just, you know, we tell a story. I mean, it's happened to me where I've just, I'm not even thinking about it. I'm telling some funny story, whatever, and at the end of it, I'm like, that was not actually what happened. <laughs> like, I totally played with the truth there without even thinking about it to try to, like, make myself, you know, look good or whatever. And that's lying. And it's something we need to be mindful of. A good test, because sometimes, you know, there's this way of trying to justify yourself where you say, like, well, like, I can't give all the details and stuff. And that's true. But the test I've tried to apply to my life is to say this. I say, okay, let's say that someone called me out on, you know, this story that I told or this thing that I said, right? They pointed out the inconsistencies. And I say, okay, I'm going to have an answer for them, because I'm really good at coming up with some explanation, right? So I say, here's the answer I would give them. And then I say, do I sound like one of those bad TV lawyers right now? <laughs> um, you know, am I like, well, technically, you know, by the letter of the law. And if I'm doing that, then that certainly means that it is a lie, and I'm being dishonest. Second, a second practical way to seek to turn from this sin is that we need to keep a close watch both on what we say and on what we listen to about other people. Scripture regularly warns against sins like gossip and malicious talk. And by, don't, 
by, just to be clear, when, they, when we talk about gossip, we don't mean lying, necessarily. Gossip does not care whether something is true or false. The question of gossip is, is this my business, right? Gossip is, is the sin of taking things that don't need to be shared, that are hurtful to others, and sharing them around, regardless of whether they're true or not. Gossip itself can cause enormous pain. It is often gossip, in fact, that breaks relationships and causes conflict. The book of Proverbs says that for lack of wood, the fire goes out, and where there is no whisperer, quarreling ceases. Which is to say that when you picture two people that are fighting, it's easy to just blame them for the fight, but that there might well be this third person back in the shadows, you know, gossiping and muttering and, and stoking the fires of that resentment. But what's really convicting to me about um, gossip in Scripture is that Scripture does not only warn against speaking gossip, but against giving it a hearing. Consider this, from Proverbs 18, it says that the words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. So they taste sweet, but that second part is supposed to kind of be a warning, that they sink down into you. And the reason that's a problem is illustrated in places like Proverbs 17:4, which says, An evildoer listens to wicked lips, and a liar gives ear to a mischievous tongue. Now look at that again if you didn't catch it. It does not say an evildoer has wicked lips. It says an evildoer listens to them. You are a liar if you give ear to a gossiping tongue. Our calling in the face of gossip is not just to try to avoid joining in. Our calling is to refuse to participate. I will never forget, years ago as a young guy, talking with this kind of mature, older believer and, um, and I was doing that thing that, you know, Christians do where you're gossiping kind of dressed up faithfully out of, like, Christian concern for the person, right? But, you know, where I'm saying this negative stuff. And he just interrupted me mid-sentence, and he looked at me and he said, that sounds like gossip. I don't listen to gossip. And he walked away. <laughs> um, now, I'm not saying that should be how we respond to everyone every time we encounter it with that kind of bluntness. But you know what? That illuminated to me a reality about my heart and about the way that I talk about people that to this day I still remember realizing. There's a real sense in which we are called um, to do that. One of the, the callings we have is to not give a hearing to falsehood. A third practical way that we should think about keeping this commandment, especially in our day, is that we should watch our speech on the internet. We are told that love in speech means upholding the good reputation of others, eagerly receiving a good report, and um, being reluctant and trying to refuse a bad report. And if I, can't if I can translate that into English, that means that we, um, we should seek to have everybody be thought of well and to spread around good information about the person and to not spread around bad information about the person, right? And the, the internet, if that is true, for most of us is a, an avenue of significant sin. I mean, the vast majority of speech that gets circulated on social media and online is a violation of the Ninth Commandment. Sharing memes that mock celebrities or politicians, spreading gossip and hearsay, even just seeking out and enjoying reading those things, right? That's giving a hearing to it. I point that out because one of the things that can happen, I think, is that often because the internet is this new technological thing, we somehow think that the rules that apply to our speech in real life do not apply to things that we read and type online. The way that we talk in comments or emails 
should be just as gentle as the way that we talk in person. The way the stories that we share, right? That's important to say. Like, you know, there, we have this sort of sense that, like, well, I'm not culpable because someone else is saying it and I'm just, like, sharing it with all of my friends, right? But that's still taking something and, and spreading it. That's, you know, that's, that's undertaking, that is our own speech. We become responsible for that. People often complain about a loss of civility and respect in our culture, and especially on the internet. But often those same people gleefully mock and ridicule those they dislike online. And that's just, that's convicting to me, right? That if that's a problem we want to seek to address in our world, we need to first take steps to not be part of that problem. And then one last practical way we can obey this commandment is that we should cultivate a spirit that focuses on the good rather than the bad. We should cultivate a spirit that rejoices in the good rather than looking at what's wrong. Paul writes this to the church in Philippi. In Philippians chapter 4, he says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, Whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Now that verse gets trotted out sometimes by Christians to speak to sort of very narrow, like, here's some stuff you should avoid, right? You know, I mean, because it's particularly bad. And that's true, but that's not what that verse is about. Rather, that verse is meant to show us that our ten the tendency of our hearts is to think about and focus on the opposite of that list. To obsess over potential falsehoods, to revel in scandal, to gleefully think about sin, to complain about impurity, to put on public display what is ugly, and so on. Our hearts are tempted to focus on those things, and scripture is saying that we need to not do that, because when our hearts focus on those things, out of the overflow of our hearts, our mouth speaks. Scripture's calling is to have hearts that delight in what is good and right, and beautiful in the world. To spend a lot less time reading and listening to people who complain about all the problems and bad stuff around us, and to instead walk out your door and sit in the beautiful world, or sit down with a neighbor and have a conversation, or open up scripture, and in that, fill your mind and your heart with what is good. A wise older saint recently observed to me, he said, why is it that whenever someone asks me how someone else is doing, what I always start with is what's wrong. Why, you know, that I always tell them about the things that are frustrating me or the struggles this person is having, rather than first celebrating all of the good things about them. There's wisdom in that. Now this commandment from Philippians does not mean we can't ever give criticism or that we can't ever recognize things that are wrong, but it means that that has to exist within a context of delight. We need to start with the good, and only from within that recognize the evil. And importantly, that's not just about love. That's actually also about being truthful. I think we recognize that focusing on the negative can lead us to say unloving things. But what we often miss is that it actually makes us say and believe untrue things as well. That's true on a worldwide scale. Just think about this, right? If, if, if you ask people, is the world getting better, staying the same, or getting worse, right? There are surveys that do this. If you ask people that, overwhelmingly people think the world is getting worse, and they always have. But, um, I mean, more than 50% of Americans would say the world is getting worse, and only 6% of Americans would say it's getting better, right? But the problem is that that's really not true by most measurable ways. Like, 
here's a few charts, right? Here is one on global poverty. Extreme poverty is those who are poor enough that they're in danger of starvation, right? It starts in 1820, ends it today. That's a downward line the whole time. In fact, just 25 years ago, right, about 25% of all the people in the world were in extreme poverty, and today it's 10%, and the population is growing. Or here's one of infant mortality, right? Same thing. Or maybe you're like, well, maybe that's true globally, but you know, the US, it's all terrible. Look, here is the violent crime rate, according to the Department of Justice in the United States, from 1973 till 2010. And it, the trend line continues, right? Crime is way, way lower in the US than it ever has been. I mean, if you let your kids play outside in the 70s or 80s, right, you should 100% let them play outside today, because it's like three times as safe as it was then. But none of us feel like that's true, right? We all feel like the opposite of that is the case. And the reason for that is because we're constantly inhaling all of the negative and evil facts about the world and ignoring the good and pure and holy ones. And the thing to recognize about that is because we're always talking about and reading and hearing all of the bad, that's actually making us believe a lie about the world. And that can also happen on a smaller individual level. I remember years ago, before I was at Kish, this isn't anyone, any of you know, but giving counsel to someone who had this, this conflict between their spouse and their mother, right? And I was talking to them about that and just kind of asking questions about the situation. And what was really striking is that what both of us, as we talked about it, suddenly realized was that what happened was whenever he called his parents, all he would do is complain about his wife, right? The only things he would share are the negative or hurtful things that she had said or done. And whenever he talked to his spouse, all that he would do <laughs> is complain about his parents and talk about the, you know, the, 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 the dumb opinions they had or the frustrating things they had done. And, um, and he, he never lied, right? Everything he said was truthful, but because what he chose to dwell on was what was um, impure and bad rather than what was good and pure, he had actually destroyed these two people's relationship with each other and made them believe a lie. In all those ways and many more, we are called to turn from our sin of speech. But like we've said several times, that is a big and hard calling. And in fact, it's kind of meant to be that way. Um, it's just generally true. If, if, we, if you ever have question that you are a sinner, right, right now, present tense, if you ever feel like, well, I think I'm a pretty good person, just deeply, honestly, with this kind of biblical standard, watch your speech for like a week. Or like a day, right? I mean, you, you will, you will fail in that calling in, in all kinds of ways. And the Bible promises that's the case. From James 3, it says, all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. We all have this visible illustration of our sinfulness living in our mouths. And that's why, as in every one of these commandments, we also must recognize that we, it calls us to turn to Jesus. In our failure, we are called to turn to Jesus. We're called to turn to him first on just the basic level that that is what we do when we recognize our guilt. We are all sinners and wretched. None of us are truly righteous, and the more we realize that, the more that magnifies the cross and God's grace. The more that makes us rejoice in the fact that it is the blood of Jesus alone that gives us any business coming into the presence of God. So we should recognize that and flee to Jesus and rejoice in him. 
But the really striking thing is that as we do that, as we turn to Jesus, that's actually part of how our speech begins to change, too. The more we apply that reality to our life, the more it actually changes our truthfulness and our love in our speech. In Ephesians chapter 4, there was a number of commandments in there, some we've talked about about how we talk, but it starts with this. Before it gets into how we speak about each other, it says this. It says, first, that, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ, which is to say, he, he's talking about this sort of rebellion against God in the verses before that, in accordance with, what, um, with the truth that is in Jesus. So Paul says that something's changed about us, you've learned something new, and what that is is the truth that is in Jesus. But he doesn't say what it is there, right? So, so take that, okay, what is this truth that is in Jesus? Then keep reading. Um, he says, first, that you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, so turn from sin. But he adds a second piece as well. He says to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So now we have this sense, okay, so what we're called to do is to turn from our sin, but in doing that, to put on this new self. And, and it sounds almost like you know, to be made new, right? We're doing something, we're putting on this new self, but it's not sort of like we're fixing ourselves, right? What's going on there? Well, it says that this new self is created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So you have this truth that is in Jesus, this truth that somehow in God is true righteousness and holiness. What, but still, we're like, what's going on? What does that mean? Well, Paul spells it out um, then a little later in verse 32 in an example. He says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. Which is saying this, that in Jesus, what is true of you is, is that God has forgiven and paid for and covered your sin. In Jesus, you, uh, in God, you have true righteousness and holiness because you have the righteousness of Jesus that he's given you in the gospel, right? You're not standing on your own righteousness, but on the righteousness that you have from Jesus. It's saying if that is true, then that actually transforms the way that we speak, both in terms of our lying and in terms of our being unloving. Here's why. The main reason that we lie is to hide um, our sin. We can either do it by lying about ourselves and hiding our sin, or we can do it by lying about others in a way that, you know, that excuses our sin or makes us feel better. And we do that because we recognize that we are guilty on some deep level, even though we lie to ourselves, too, and maybe on a service level convention, right? Deep down, we recognize that. But what Paul is saying is that if you take the truth that you have in Jesus and apply yourself to that, you don't have to lie anymore, right? Because you don't have to hide your sin. Because it's paid for and covered, and you have the righteousness of Jesus. You can be truthful and say, yes, like, I failed in these ways, and I have these weaknesses, and I am wrong about all kinds of stuff. Because, praise the Lord, like, I don't have to be righteous in myself in order to, to be justified. I have this righteousness in Jesus. And then likewise, the reason we are unloving in our speech is because we don't properly value others. And we dwell on their sin and their weakness. But the gospel, if we applied it to our heart, like we just said, also changes how we view them. Because suddenly, we look at them and recognize we have to view them through that same lens. 
that Jesus died, you know, to, to save them just as surely as us. That we are just as undeserving as they are of that mercy, but that in Jesus Christ, they're offered that same kind of righteousness in life. And so, of course, we have to seek with them that the kind of honor that we ought to accord to Christ. Which is to say that the more that we really recognize and apply to ourselves the reality of what God has done in Jesus, the more that actually transforms the way we talk about others. May we live into that calling in our lives. Would you pray with me? God and Father, I recognize my many sins of speech. I pray that you would forgive them and thank you that you have worked their forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would be calling all of us to both rejoice in that grace you offered. We are unworthy to stand before you, but that in Jesus you have worked our salvation. That out of that, we would then seek to tell the truth and show your love in our words. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.